we continue at chapter 14, if you could turn there in your Bibles. But before I read today's passage, I just wanted to set it in context. We're picking up just after the Last Supper. Jesus is in Jerusalem to great celebration. He's had several lively interactions with the Pharisees and temple authorities. He's sat and eaten a Passover meal with the apostles and told me he was to die. And then he washed their feet. And this all takes place in the upper room where the Last Supper was held, just before they set off for Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested. And the next couple of chapters are the last words that Jesus says to the apostles before he's crucified. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, has already cleared off, although he does pop up again in a few chapters time. But these are the Lord's very last words to the apostles before he's murdered. These are the very last words of Jesus to the church before the cross and resurrection. And I just want you to think for a few moments. If you knew you were going to die the next day, how important would the words, would your words be to those closest to you? How carefully would you choose your last words to the people who'd given up their lives to follow you? Does anyone here use a red letter Bible? Yeah, good. If you've never heard of a red letter Bible, it's one where the words of Jesus are in red. And some people like a red letter Bible so they can concentrate on the words of Jesus. Others feel strongly that red letter Bibles are a bad thing because all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness. So that so that we can be complete and equipped for good work. Now, personally, I don't have a strong opinion either way. I agree that all scripture is God breathed but I don't feel strongly enough about it that it's worth falling out about. And, and if it helps you focus on Christ, then great. But I can't help but notice the next couple of chapters are absolutely solid with red ink. As someone who's got one, Paul can, can hold it up just so everyone can see. Um, so naturally, the Gospels have more red ink than the rest of the Bible. The book of Revelation has a bit of red ink, and there's a sprinkling throughout some of the other books in the New Testament. But this next couple of chapters are absolutely solid with red ink. Jesus has a lot to say, and it's no wonder. These are his last words before the cross. And given how carefully Jesus must have chosen these last words, maybe they shouldn't just be in red. They should be in capital letters, highlighted in bold and underlined. They're important words that he would have wanted his disciples to think about carefully. So let's look at them now. John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. 
Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I'm not le- I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but it's from the Father who sent me. I have sent these things to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I've said to you. Peace I leave, leave you with. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So, As we've heard over the last couple of weeks, Jesus has told the disciples he's going to be lifted up. And it's hard to imagine what's going through their heads right now. Bewilderment, disappointment, fear. The teacher they've been following for all this time is going to be murdered. What does this mean for them? What does it mean for the kingdom? They've been traveling around, healing people, casting out demons in his name, telling people that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Surely that's all over now. Will the authorities come after them next? Maybe their families too. Was it all a mistake and Jesus wasn't the Messiah? And not only that, but one of them was going to be the one who betrayed him. Who? What must they have been feeling? Disappointment, despair. Their heads must have been all over the place. And then Jesus says these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. 
I've heard that, that passage preached a few times, and I've heard it at least twice at funerals. I drew on it myself when I spoke at Mary Penton's funeral earlier in the year. And it's, and it's often used in the context of reassurance that, as believers, we'll go to paradise when we die. And this is a valid interpretation. We do, we do go somewhere good when we die. Jesus promises this to the thief on the cross. He says to him, truly, I say to you, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So some people say it's referring to heaven, where they say we'll go when we die. Better scholars recognize that it's only a temporary resting place until Jesus returns and we're resurrected. But when we die, we will go to paradise, at least initially. But I want to look at another way of seeing this short passage. Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. Could he be referring to something different when he talks about my father's house? Well, elsewhere in the Gospels, he refers to the temple as his father's house. When he, refer, when he drives the money changers out of the temple. And in the Old Testament, when we see references to the house of God, it's referring to the temple. And I think that's possibly what Jesus is doing here. When he talks about my father's house, he's referring to the temple. But does that make any more sense? The temple has many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Well, he can't be talking about the Jerusalem temple because I don't think him or the disciples would be made welcome there. But what if he's not talking about the Jerusalem temple? What if he's talking about a different temple? Well, we'll park that idea for a bit and come back to it. At this point in verse 5, Thomas pipes up. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I always like Thomas. I think he gets a bad deal in church history by being called Doubting Thomas. But on this occasion, I don't think he's doubting. He's just saying what everyone else is thinking. Lord, what are you on about? We don't know where you're going. And that's not an unreasonable response. I'm sure most of us would feel the same in their situation. And Jesus replies with these astonishing words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How can we find a way to be part of God's kingdom? Through Jesus, no other way. And that's a hard message. We all know people who reject Jesus, and we wish there was another way. None of us want to see our non-believing friends and loved ones condemned. And perhaps we're tempted to think, How could a loving, merciful God allow anyone to perish? Judgment and death aren't very nice. God is love. Therefore, God won't judge or condemn anyone. And I'm sure that's a view most of us wish was true. But it's not supported by the words of Jesus or the broad sweep of the Bible. God is loving. God is merciful. But he's also just. He's also holy. And there's a reason it's such a hard message for us. God has given a portion of his own love for the people created in his image, even those who rebel against him. And as long as we're in this life, it should cause us distress to think of the judgment of others. That's what, that's what should encourage us to bring people along to the rediscovery course on Thursday. That's what should drive us to share the gospel with our friends, neighbours and family who don't know Christ. It is difficult, especially in our reserved British culture. 
if, if we're not used to doing it, it's very hard to talk about our faith with people, but it does get easier with practice. And it can feel awkward to share the gospel, but think about this. Jesus was beaten to a pulp. He had most of his clothes removed and was publicly nailed to a cross, half naked and left to die, so that we could have eternal life. And maybe that puts our embarrassment into perspective. God is love. He so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That isn't something the creator of heaven and earth would do lightly. What more could he do to offer us a way to escape condemnation? If there was another way, then Christ died for nothing. It's a hard message, but I do believe it's all true and supported by the Bible. But getting back to our reading this morning, I don't think that's necessarily the message we're trying to get across here. He seems to be talking in quite a different context. I don't think he was speaking those words to condemn anyone. He seems to be using these words to comfort the disciples. He opens the passage with the words, let not your hearts be troubled, and closes by talking about the peace he's leaving them with. And if we think about that, he told them over dinner that they were going to be betrayed and that he was going to be betrayed and lifted up. And then he's told them that the same thing was going to happen to them. Where he goes, they must go also. And they must be thinking, it's all over. This idea of kingdom and everlasting life, that's it, dead. All this time, they'd been thinking God was going to be in charge once again with Jesus as Lord. They were expecting an end to oppression. They were expecting an end to poverty. They were expecting an end to sickness and death. They were expecting a time when every tear will be wiped from every eye. And all those ideas were dead in the water. The person they thought was the Messiah was going to be betrayed and murdered. And in the days to come, Jesus knew they would see these things taking place. So he reassures them. He tells them that everything is going to plan. Let not your hearts be troubled. I am the way. Let not your hearts be troubled. I am the truth. Let not your hearts be troubled. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let not your hearts be troubled. And those same words of reassurance can be for us too. Life is hard. Sometimes it's really hard. And sometimes it's hard for us to see how the kingdom of heaven could really be at hand. There's so much pain in the world, so much poverty, so much injustice, so much violence in the world. So much sickness and death. Can Christ really be in control? And it's really easy for me to stand up here and talk about it in a distant way. Talk about all those things going on out there in the world. But it's the same in our lives. There's people in this room today are struggling with the finances. People here are struggling with injustice. People here are struggling with health issues. People are struggling with loss. How can this be? Is the kingdom of heaven really at hand? Is Christ really in control? Yes. Let not your hearts be troubled. He is the way. Let not your hearts be troubled. He is the truth. Let not your hearts be troubled. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, it's all very well saying those words. I could stand here all day repeating those words, reassuring you that the kingdom of heaven has broken into this world and everything's going to be all right. But they're just words. How can we be sure? 
How can we be certain they're not hollow words? Well, there are two reasons. And the first reason is the resurrection. The resurrection wasn't just a happy ending to the story of Jesus' life. It validates Jesus' life. Everything Jesus said, everything Jesus taught, everything Jesus claimed about himself, everything Jesus promised, if it was a pack of lies, the resurrection wouldn't have happened. God wouldn't have resurrected a liar. God wouldn't resurrect a, a charlatan who was just trying to glorify himself. Everything is validated by his resurrection. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. We can rest in the knowledge that we're saved by the death of Jesus for our sins, his burial, and then his being raised. We can be absolutely confident that there's no barrier between us and the kingdom. We are accepted. Let not your hearts be troubled. And there's another reason we can be sure these words are true. In the second part of our passage today, Jesus is going to ask his father to send us a helper, the spirit of truth. This must have been baffling for the disciples. Who was he talking about? Who was he sending? Would it be another like Jesus? The disciples would have been confused, but of course it's much easier for us to look back at this passage and see that Jesus was clearly telling them about the Holy Spirit. And knowing this helps us make sense of a lot of this chapter, especially some of the stuff beforehand. Look at verse 20, for example. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, that's gobbledygook. But, uh, if any, or verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What, what does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit, that holy breath of God lives in us. The, the same spirit that flows from the Father through Christ lives in us also. And his presence reassures us that Christ Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is the seal God puts on all believers. He's the proof in our hearts that we are God's children. And he's the way that we know we are in Christ and Christ is in us. When you have the Spirit, you know for sure that you're God's possession. And it's, it's as Paul tells us in Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. When we feel the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're reassured that God is in control and he has a place for us in his plans. When we feel the Holy Spirit rising up in us when we worship together, we know the power of God is present in our lives. When we pray and hear that still small voice moving us, guiding us, comforting us, we know that we're accepted by God. When we read the scriptures and the Holy Spirit whispers to us that this is more than just a book, more than just words, it's God's redemption plan working through history and he's chosen to include us in that plan. Let not your hearts be troubled. And when we know this passage is referring to the Holy Spirit, it helps us understand some of the other difficult parts earlier in the passage. So let's go back to the start of the passage. My father's house has many rooms. Like I said, my father's house or the house of God usually refers to the temple. And there's an interesting thing in the New Testament. After the cross, the temple's hardly ever mentioned. 
It's there a few times in the Gospels and frequently in the Old Testament where it's held in high regard as the place where heaven meets earth. But it's hardly mentioned in the New Testament after the cross. Why is that? Is it because God doesn't have a presence in the new world? Or maybe there's a new or different temple? What do you think? Where's the presence of God now? Yes, we're the temple of God. The presence of God rests in us through his breath, the Holy Spirit. We are the Father's house. And this is what Jesus was saying at the start of today's passage. Let not your hearts be troubled. My Father's house has many rooms. I go there now to prepare a place for you. So as he does again later in the chapter, Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit. We are the Father's house. The church is the Father's house. And Jesus had to leave us in order for us to receive the Holy Spirit. And it's not a small house. It doesn't have a limited number of rooms like some cults teach. The Father's house has many rooms and we can be confident that Christ Jesus has prepared a place for each one of us in that house. Finally, I want to finish by looking at a, quite an alarming line in our passage today, one that's hard to ignore. And that's verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. We'll do greater works than Jesus. No pressure there then. Has anyone walked into water recently? Walked, walked on water? Walked, yeah. Um, our home group's always entertaining, because Angie comes around and turns water into wine. But it's there in black and white, or red and white, depending on what Bible you're using. Depend, we will do greater things than Jesus. And it's true. With the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the church has done many great things. Hospitals and medicines arose from monasteries and abbeys. Schools and universities, the same. The abolition of slavery was achieved by good people who listened to God and trusted him. One way or another, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Christ has used us, the church, that great cloud of witnesses, to reach millions of people that he couldn't reach, have reached himself. And he'll continue to use us the same way, sometimes for bigger things, sometimes for smaller things, until the will of the Father is accomplished and all is complete. Praise God that he's chosen us for, to be part of that story. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now. And I'm going to close with some of Paul's words from his letter to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for that day at Pentecost when you sent the Holy Spirit to empower, reassure and comfort your church. Thank you for that special day when we became your Father's house. Lord, I ask that you would fill us afresh with your Spirit, so that as promised we might do greater works than you. 
Lord, thank you for your peace and your assurance that all things are in your hands and that everything you purpose will be done on earth as in heaven. Thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us to be your people to accomplish this in your name. And Lord, I ask for these things not for our glory, but so that the Father might be glorified in you. I ask for all this in your precious name. Amen.